We are looking at chapter 21, and we're going to be considering verse 15 down through about verse 26 or so. Um, the remainder of this chapter we'll consider in more detail. We'll touch on it this morning, but we'll consider it in more detail later. So Acts chapter 21, I'm going to read for us verses 15 through 26. If you would follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read aloud. Acts 21, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. And after those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he agreed to them, he told in detail those things which God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they have been informed about you, that you teach all the Jews who are amongst the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to walk uh, they ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads, that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification at which time an offering should be made for each of them. Lord, we pray that as we consider this your word, that you would be glorified in our time together, that your Holy Spirit would use the Word to speak to our hearts, to change us, to conform us to the image of your dear Son. We pray these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. Minister with love to those who are around you. Paul was committed to ministry with love to those that were around him. And, and now Paul makes his way to his beloved Jerusalem. He hadn't been there for several years. And you've noticed over the last few chapters how Paul has been making his way with an eye set on Jerusalem, trying to make it there in time for the Passover celebration. This would be an important time. And in fact, Paul uh, timed his strategic entrance into the city when the crowds would be gathered for this celebration and his entrance could make the most impact for the sake of the gospel. And of course, we see Paul in this passage, as we see in many other passages, him <clears throat> ministering with love to those that were around him. Well, I ask you this morning, have you ever been misunderstood? Have you ever been uh, take how your words taken out of context and and spun to mean something that you didn't mean by them, right? We've all had that experience. 
Probably every person has had some situation where a, a rumor was started about them, and, and, and perhaps you can figure out the origin of that rumor, but it is so far afield from, from what is accurate, what is true about you, that you kind of scratch your head and say, how, how do these things happen? Well, Paul finds himself in the midst of just that kind of a situation. We saw in the beginning of our reading from chapter 21, beginning in verse 15, they make their way to Jerusalem, and their first stop is with the, the elders of the church there in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem, it, it, probably in our modern nomenclature, we would call James the, the lead pastor or the senior pastor. James is the, this is the brother of Jesus, that James, there's a couple of them, and he is pastoring the church there in Jerusalem. But of course, there is a plurality of leadership, and this leadership gathers to hear the report from Paul about the ministry that has taken place amongst the Gentiles. Paul reports back all of the things that we've been studying over the preceding chapters and how God is working amongst the Gentiles, how the gospel is going forward. And they, you see in verse 20, rejoice, right? Verse 20, they heard it. And they glorified God. And so Paul's ministry has been effective. It has been fruitful for the cause of the gospel. And in that, those in Jerusalem rejoice. But there's a problem. Go on in verse 20 with me. You see, brethren, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed. So there in Jerusalem, there was a a large concentration of God-fearing people, Jews, who, who honored the law and had, been, had come under the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ, had embraced Jesus Christ as their Messiah, their Savior. They had believed they were now part of the church in Jerusalem. And so you had this consolidation of believers who came from the same cultural context. This was a much more homogenous church than many of the churches that Paul had been ministering to and even founding. And so it says in the last part of verse 20, they are all zealous for the law. Now, I wanted for us to spend a couple weeks, which we have in, in recent weeks, considering the Mosaic Covenant. Right? We talked about the context of the Mosaic Covenant. And as we have that understanding, we now come to a transitional point in the narrative of what God is doing in the world. I mean, Acts really is transitional. I mean, we look at the church today and we really don't see a largely Jewish church. But in the beginning of the book, uh, book of Acts, the church was 100% Jewish. And it wasn't until Cornelius, right, that we see the first Gentile convert. And then as the gospel goes forward at the hand of Paul, many of those who believe are Gentiles. So you now have around the known world at that time, this smattering of both Jews and Gentiles that make up the churches. Well, you don't have to know the New Testament very well to know that this was a source of, of tension of difficulty in many of the churches in that day. Well, Jerusalem, of course, would be the epicenter of that. 
And so the elders make the point in the last part of verse 20 that these believers are zealous about the law. In verse 21, they've been informed about you, watch this, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, right? So the dispersed, the dispersed Jews, you're teaching dispersed Jews to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, that's the sign of the covenant, nor to walk according to the customs. So the rumor had gotten back to Jerusalem that Paul was preaching that Jews must abandon the law. You see, in the Jewish mind, the Mosaic law was synonymous with being God-fearing. And so for a Jew to abandon the law was unthinkable. Paul's ministry had been misunderstood. The rumor had gotten back that Paul was encouraging, that was, he was demanding that Jewish people abandon that which their culture had always identified with being a God-fearing person. What Paul actually taught, of course, was that Gentiles did not have to become Jews to be saved, right? Romans 3, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So clearly Paul taught that the Mosaic law was not a gospel obligation, that, that, that one did not have to submit to the law in order to be saved. He writes extensively about this in the book of Galatians. However, Jews could remain Jews and be saved if they, if they trusted Christ, if they repented and believed, if they put their dependence on Jesus Christ, their Messiah. This is what he addresses in Romans 14, right? Some of you, he writes to the Roman church, some of you observe certain holidays, right? Jewish celebration feasts. Others of you do not. Certain of you partake of certain foods, others of you do not. And the appeal of Romans 14, if you've ever studied it, is to, to recognize that there are different people coming from different cultures who, whose consciences are bound in different ways. And Paul actually affirms this diversity of views, this diversity of conscience in the church in Rome. That's what Romans 14 is. So he's not saying you, Jewish believer, must abandon the law. He recognizes there are many Jewish believers whose consciences are bound to the law and warns against that. So one commentator, F.F. Bruce, says, Paul cannot fairly be charged with the compromise of his own gospel principles. Now there are some cautions in this passage for us. I think the first of them would be Beware of gossip, right? I mean, what is, what is happening here is, is really a product of the rumor mill. Paul's words had been taken and twisted. The, the message that Paul is preaching has been, has been taken and, and it has been misunderstood. It has been passed on in a false way. You know, sometimes even speaking truth will be misunderstood, and so we ought to be alert to that. It's unfortunate, but it does happen. If you study out the Greek, it seems that what has happened here is that someone took a short clip of Paul's sermon and posted it on social media. And, and, and you know, it went viral. 
his, his words were taken out of context. His, his, the message that he was preaching was not well understood. And, and so this had spread. And Paul now makes his way into Jerusalem to find a rather hostile environment. Things went downhill from there. So his ministry had been misunderstood. And that leads to what we're going to call an unfortunate choice. So Paul loves the Jewish people. In fact, he says in Scripture that his heart's cry is for his own people, that they might be saved. And so that leads to the last part of verse 20, when the elders of the church in Jerusalem make a suggestion. Consider it with me. You see, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews that have believed they're zealous about the law. They've been informed, verse 21, about you that you teach all Jews to forsake the law. So what should we do? Verse 22. What then? The assembly must certainly meet. That is to say that the Jewish leadership, the non-believers, those that rule in the in the affairs of the Jewish people and the religious practices, they will certainly gather because they've heard that you are in town. Right? They will hear that you have come. Verse 23, so do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them. Pay the expenses. Shave their heads. So what's happening here is they are encouraging Paul to participate in a Nazarite ceremony. You're familiar with the Nazarite vow from the Old Testament. There were those that, that made themselves a commitment to the Nazarite vow. Sometimes, you remember, Samson was a Nazarite for life, but often this was a vow that was taken for a period of time. And then at the end of that period, there was a ceremony. And this is what they're encouraging Paul to participate in. And what they're, what they're saying is, okay, Paul, if you participate in this Jewish ritual, in this Jewish custom, that will send a signal to those around you that you are not anti-Mosaic law. That you understand the culture, you understand the situation, you understand those that are around you that are God-fearing people, and, and you're participating in this uh, event, this ceremony. And so, this is what the elders encourage him to do. Now, as we look at this decision, I think it's good for us to think back a little bit to what we've talked about the last couple weeks, about the Mosaic Law, the context of the Mosaic Law, the reality that we are not under the Mosaic Law. And I think it's important to point out a few things about this decision. First of all, this decision did not contradict the gospel that Paul taught. There's nothing in this text that gives us any indication that Paul thought this was in any way imparting grace, in any way earning favor with God, in, er in any way providing salvation. Paul was clear on the gospel. Again, I refer you to the book of Galatians where Paul repudiates a legalistic gospel, a gospel that says you must come to Christ through the law. And so that's not what is happening here. So the first thing I want us to, to, to bear in mind about this decision is that it does not contradict the gospel that is so clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. So you say, okay, this was not a case of Paul compromising the gospel, so then why did he do it? All right? I mean, I mean, pastor, 
you just emphasized last week that believers are not bound by Mosaic law. So why does Paul seem to be subjugating himself to the law? I'm confused. Why is he doing this if we're not bound by the law? Well, it's a good question. I'm glad you asked. All right, the second consideration that I want us to think about when we look at this decision is that this decision was born out of cultural accommodation, not ethical obligation. There's some big words in there, so I'm going to say it again. All right? The decision was born out of cultural accommodation, not ethical obligation. Paul is not doing this because he's bound by the law. Paul is doing this because to, to not do, the, the elders are suggesting it and he is going along with their suggestion because there's the potential of very real danger, even violence against Paul because he is seen by those around him as shaking his fist in the face of their culture. And so Paul is trying to accommodate to, to show genuine love for those around him. We see no indication that this is somehow Paul being bound by the law. I, I would just assume that Paul is living out what he says in 1 Corinthians 9. What does he say? To the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. To those that are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without law, now clarify, not without law toward God, but under law towards Christ. In other words, he's not talking about lawlessness. He's talking about those who are not under the Mosaic covenant. To those who are not under the Mosaic covenant, that I might win those who are without the law. You follow what he's saying here? I adapted to the culture around me within biblical parameters. He's not going to do something that is contrary to righteousness. He's not going to do something that is wrong in order to accommodate the culture. But he's also alert to what is happening around him, to the cultural sensitivities of those that are around him. And he is appropriately adapting himself. Not the gospel, but himself. And so he does this for the sake of winning others. To the weak I became as weak, that I might be all, I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And so here in 1 Corinthians, you have this, this pithy statement about what Paul is doing in Acts 21. He is attempting out of love for others to participate in a Jewish ceremony, which really leads us to the third consideration that I want us to think about in respect to Paul's decision. And that is the decision was an attempt to enhance ministry. Uh, many of you have heard me use the phrase before, and it's not original with me. It's one I've repeated from, from others. But Paul was limiting his liberty to multiply his ministry. He was limiting his liberty to multiply his ministry. 
Paul is, is making an effort. The Jewish, um, uh, the, the leaders of the Jerusalem church were, were making an effort to enhance ministry, to have a more effective ministry. Because those who were unbelievers, who were in positions of leadership even, were going to oppose Paul based on the rumor that they had, they had heard. And then I also want us to notice one thing, one last thing, and that is, as we consider this decision, is that the decision didn't work, <laughs> right? If you actually read the rest of the chapter, what you'll find out is Paul still gets drug out and they try to kill him, and the only thing that intervenes is the Roman soldiers coming down from their perch. So what we see here is they're trying to accommodate the culture, and yet it didn't work. So here's the difficult question of this passage. This is, a, this is a bit of a thorny passage because here's the difficult question. Was that the right thing to do? The recommendation of the elders and Paul's submission to it, was that a wise decision? I mean, on the one hand, it could be seen as an attempt to keep Paul from trouble. But on the other hand, was it placating the, the legalistic choices, uh, the legalistic gospel? Was that helpful in the grand scheme? Was this motivated by fear or by wisdom? Was it removing a stumbling block for the cause of the gospel? Or was it adding fuel to the fire of falsehood that was already consuming some of the church? You see why this is a difficult question? The answer is, of course, was this a right or wrong decision? Was this wise or was this unwise? The answer is, of course, the answer is, of course, Unclear, right? I mean, if we took a little poll in this room, we might have a split decision. I mean, some of you might say, well, Paul was doing his best. The, the elders in the church of Jerusalem were doing their best. And others are like, no, they, they compromised with false teaching, right? Here's the thing. Commentators even disagree on this. I've read different commentaries that, that put Paul's decision, that, that put the recommendation of the elders in Jerusalem, that put their decision in different lights using the same text of Scripture. I mean, there's nothing actually in the text that says right decision, wrong decision, wise decision, unwise decision. Now, I suspect Paul was doing it out of good, mo good motives, but we don't really have something that indicates this is a right decision. I mean, here's what you've got. You've got a group of people who are fiercely dedicated to a culture, yea, even a culture informed by God's truth, right? That's what the Jewish nation, the Jewish people were all about. And those people are fighting hard to preserve that culture, and when they see even the slightest hint of something displacing them, it troubles them greatly. And so the, the gospel is confronting that culture. The winds of change are blowing. 
And it can be difficult to know to what extension the culture should be accommodated by believers and to what extent it should be confronted by believers. It seems that even the churches in the New Testament struggled with this very question. I mean, read through the epistles and how the law was handled and how there were disputes between Jewish and Gentile believers over this question of the law. There was a struggle to know how different people from divergent cultures relate to the old paths and how they relate to one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, who answer these questions differently. Well, I don't know about you, but I see a tremendous parallel to our, to our situation in America today. I mean, Christians in America are struggling with how to relate to new and growing problems. Some have idolized a historic culture that has idealized, has been idealized as, as right, as righteous. And others are trying to overthrow everything, even the, uh, even the righteous aspects of historic culture. Biblical Christians are struggling with how to relate to the shifting sands around us, how to engage with the culture wisely, and how to love our fellow man and most especially love our fellow believers. Guess what? We won't always get it right. We must encourage each other to do the right thing, to be more biblical every day, and respect the fact that we will not always agree. Some have asked me about the situation in California, where some pastors, some church leaderships have chosen to continue to, the, to meet in the face of government opposing them. Some see this as a government overreach, an attempt to curtail religious liberty, and they're pushing back against that by saying, we will, we will obey God rather than men. Others see this as a situation wherein it is possible to obey both God and man, and that's what we ought to be doing. These are not easy issues, and if you've asked me personally, you've heard me argue it both ways. Because the reality is, it's not an easy issue. And I think we ought to give a great deal of deference to fellow believers who are responding to difficult cultural dynamics in dramatically different ways. And as I look at this passage, I have, I have a hard time either affirming or condemning the decision that the leadership made here. We're not always going to get it right. Good people, fellow believers, approach culture differently. We even see politics differently. We're not going to get it all right. Your brother and sister in Christ is not going to get it all right. We must be dedicated to the clearest teaching of Scripture and holding the line on biblical truth, but we also must be grace-filled enough to recognize that we will have differences in the way we apply that biblical truth. And so they make a decision here that turns out to be an unfortunate decision. Whether you think it was right 
or wrong, wise or unwise, it does not turn out well for them. It does not sufficiently placate the opposition of those around them. But here's the joyous thing to know, that loving ministry will accomplish God's providential plan. So in verse 27, the seven days were almost ended. The Jews from Asia, seen in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laying hands on him, cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple, false accusation, and has, uh, and has filled this holy place, defiled this holy place. All right, so they accuse him. We'll go on in the passage next week, but this mob surrounds him and nearly beats him to death were it not for the intervention of the Roman soldiers. This did not go well. This did not end well. But Paul got another chance to preach. And isn't that just like Paul? Right? I mean, he's in the middle of a mob that's about ready to kill him. The soldiers save him, and so Paul's like, hang on a second. Hey, can I preach real quick here? Right? I mean, this is not a man filled with fear. He's facing a mob that a few minutes ago was about to kill him, and, and he delivers his defense. And so even in all of this, God uses it for his glory, for the cause of the gospel. This is the beginning of the end for Paul. I mean, if you know the narrative of Paul's life, you know what's getting ready to happen. I mean, Jerusalem was his last stop before the beginning of the end. And so even his march towards his death produces fruit for the cause of the gospel. And the wonderful thing is that God is like that. He can turn our bumbling efforts, he can turn our maybe even unwise decisions for his glory. Now, don't misunderstand. That's not an excuse for us to haphazardly make decisions, for us to be unwise and say, well, it's all up to God. No, no, we're still called upon to do what is right, to do what is wise, to do what is best, to do what is prudent. But the reality is that, that God is still accomplishing his work despite our feeble efforts. And what a reassurance it is to know that Paul, who was doing his best to love his fellow Jews, makes this this attempt to minister to them in a loving way, it backfires, but God still accomplishes His purposes. And so the challenge for us is to do our part, to love those that are around us, to respect the fact that, that different consciences will be bound differently, even in the world around us. There are things that we'll have to be sensitive to. What do you think about political correctness? If you happen to be on one particular side of the political divide, that term might cause you to bristle, to, to recoil. Well, I'm not into political correctness. And certainly, it's fraught with problems because some politically Political correctness is a call on us to forsake biblical truth, but there are other aspects of political correctness that's just basically being polite to people. Is that a cultural sensitivity? Is that something that we should be aware of as we minister to others? It seems to me that Paul, who said, I became the Jews 
uh, became a Jew to the Jews was willing to submit himself to some cultural expectations in order to not be a barrier to the gospel. Most of all, our ministry to others should be informed by love, by concern, by care for those that are around us that are unbelieving. And so the challenge for us this morning is to love those around us, to minister with love to those who are around us. Lord, thank you for the words of Scripture that remind us. Thank you for the example of those who have gone before us that remind us, Lord, to be loving to others. I pray, Lord, as we meditate even this week on how we can do that, that you would encourage our hearts, help us to be wise, and help us to love others.